Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, Chris. Um, welcome, listeners, to the other hand. Uh, it's, I suppose, it's cliched at this stage, but one can always describe the period one is living through as interesting times. Uh, but as we sit down to record this podcast, Chris, I think it is safe to say that these are indeed interesting times. Um, what I think we'd like to discuss today is, number one, I want to talk to you about a superb piece I believe you wrote for our Substack account on the UK situation during the week. Secondly, markets are in a little bit of turmoil at the moment, so lots of factors feeding into that, bond yields rising, um, some currency movements that we haven't seen for a while, and of course, equity markets have had a dreadful time in the United States over the last 24 hours or so. And then overlying all of this, there is a... An incredible energy story emerging, you know, with natural gas prices, oil prices, all under significant um, pressure. And I guess before we discuss any of these issues, um, it is important to point out that they are all interrelated. So discuss them in isolation um, probably doesn't work very well. They all actually are part of the same equation as such. But Chris, starting off with the uh, piece you wrote for the Substack account on what's happening in Britain at the moment. And um, I noticed a lot of the feedback you got, there was very few people, if any, disagreeing with your prognosis of what's going on over there at the moment. And um, the subtitle to your piece was, it's actually worse than it looks. 
So could you um, talk to me? Yeah, it was motivated by really to check in on how Brexit is doing in the UK to see whether it's going in the way that I and many other like-minded people like me, diehard Remainers, I have to fully disclose that in case anybody doesn't know. We forecast a lot of things. We said a lot of things would happen and it's pretty much panning out the way we thought it would. Uh, And the best metaphor that I can use is that Brexit is like a slow puncture for the UK economy. It's not an unmitigated disaster in the short term, at least, but it is a severe problem across a whole range of sectors. We know all about the HGV driver shortage. That's pan-European. The problem in the UK is common to a lot of other countries. What's happening there is that that allows the government to say it's nothing to do with Brexit. More generally, whatever the problems facing the UK economy, the refrain from the authorities, who are all Brexiteers, of course, is that it's nothing to do with Brexit. Like all stories, this one is complicated, it's multifaceted, and like all great lies, the one about it's nothing to do with Brexit does come wrapped around a kernel of truth. Because that HGV driver shortage, of course, part of it doesn't have anything to do with Brexit. But there is plenty of evidence from both surveys and hard data that it's got quite a lot to do with Brexit. At its most simple, if you just look at other European countries, they don't have the petrol shortages that we have here. And the extent to which they have driver shortages, they're not nearly as big as they are in the UK. Brexit has made an existing problem, which has another cause, even worse. So that's what's going there. The other area of Europe I'd point to is Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland doesn't have these issues that the, the that Great Britain does. And that's ironically, perhaps, because it's still, from a trade point of view and from a whole host of other perspectives, effectively still in the EU. It has the best of both worlds. It's in the EU internal market as well as the UK's internal market, sort of, subject to the border in the Irish Sea, of course. And we may or may not talk about that later on. So I wanted to go through all the different ways, uh, away from the headlines, if you like, about uh, petrol shortages and queues of cars on the forecourt and the chaos that that is causing, which is still ongoing, and to say that, okay, what's causing shortages? Where are they occurring? I began the piece by talking about polyfiller, which I don't know if that translates into Ireland, but polyfiller is, is a basic tool of a painter and decorator's trade. A few months ago, I had a room painted in my house here and the decorator turned up the other day looking for a half full, very large pot of professional filler. It wasn't polyfiller, but it was that kind of stuff that they use to fill in dents and bumps in walls before they paint them. And he was saying this sort of stuff he buys from his supplier as and when he needs it for years. And it's always there. He went on that particular morning to his supplier for another job he's doing. And they, it was t- he was told that he could get some in three months time. So he came looking for the stuff that he'd left behind here. And luckily for him, I hadn't thrown it out. You, you take a little story like that and have a look at all, a whole range of other things that are going on here. Uh, There is much talk about shortages of turkeys for Christmas, shortages of Christmas trees for Christmas, shortages of toys and other Christmas paraphernalia. That's all talk at the moment. We don't know if it's actually going to happen. Apparently, stocks of fireworks are 70% below where they normally are at this time of year because we're we're coming into the period prior and including the Guy Fawkes celebrations, which you may or may not know was um, when the English 
tortured and executed a Catholic for trying to blow up the Houses of Parliament. We celebrate this by burning effigies of Guy Fawkes on bonfires. It's all charming stuff, redolent of people who really don't know their history and how grim that was, not least for Guy Fawkes and his collaborators. But anyway, we celebrate it by burning effigies and letting off lots of fireworks. And apparently there's going to be lots of shortages of those. And so it goes on. There's just so many other things going on that there are shortages of. You've only got to walk into a British supermarket these days and look at the empty shelves. And where there is stuff on the shelves, you'll often notice that there isn't as much stuff as there usually is. The trials and tribulations of exporters are reasonably well documented. But when you do a bit of digging, uh, you find that they're actually worse than the headlines would suggest. Why are they worse than the headlines would suggest? Well, it's the problem with the headlines, actually, because the the press is basically, with one or two honourable exceptions, rabidly pro-Brexit. So they are not reporting any of this stuff. The government, as I said, is denying it's got anything to do with Brexit. And it clearly feels it's very important to keep stoking the Brexit forever war that the British are trapped in. It's a culture war and it's going to last forever. Johnson is clearly determined to fight the next general election whenever that comes on the Brexit culture war. And it's very important for them to keep it going. So there's been a whole host of ministers uh, coming out, government spokespeople saying it's nothing to do with Brexit because, because. And as I said, all great lies come wrapped around a kernel of truth. And the kernel of truth is that it is complicated. It's not just Brexit as I've said, but Brexit is just making all of these things worse, not least the energy crisis, which of course affects all economies, not least Ireland. The price of gas, as you mentioned, is at multi-year highs. It just keeps going up. Uh, There are lots of reasons for that. We can go into that if you're interested, but it's being accompanied by a steady rise in the oil price. That too is is at a recent high, and we can all see that in the price of petrol and diesel going up in the forecourts. Other countries are experiencing this too, and there's talk of an energy crisis. I feel that that's a bit previous, but as you said at the beginning of your uh, introduction, everything is related to everything else. So the energy crisis is feeding this wider Brexit problem that we have with trade in the UK, um, the availability of goods. The inflation story for energy prices is writ large. We've talked about that so many times, and the inflation numbers are stubbornly high. And even the chairman of the Federal Reserve this week said that that word temporary that we've been using about the pressures on prices, um, well, it's proved to be a lot less temporary than we originally thought. But he said, we still think it's temporary, which is exactly what the Bank of England and the ECB and everybody else in that sphere are saying as well. So everything as always in the world economy, is related to everything else. And that's combined to produce all these lurid headlines about energy, which has got the market spooked, as as you rightly say, about equity markets and bonds. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But Britain has, I think, a, a real problem. And, and I did say it's worse than you think, because it, if you just read the British press, you don't get the proper impression of just how bad things are here economically from a supply point of view, but also politically. Because the atmosphere is, is, is totally poisonous and the incompetence of the government is, is extraordinary. Keir Starmer put it well in his conference speech uh, to the Labour Party this week when he said that um, the Conservative Party keep talking about levelling up, but they can't even get it, allow us to fill up. 
So it's so it's it's multifaceted. Yeah, Chris, is it impacting on Boris's popularity? Because it strikes me from this side of the water that the real indictment here is Ker Starmer and the Labour Party. You know, the fact that they are not making hay in this sort of chaotic environment that Boris Johnson has actually created. What, what's going on? Keir Starmer, who has, sadly for him, a bit of a charisma bypass, uh, and these days uh, politicians do require all of that oomph, pizzazz and bluster thing that Johnson has in spades. Keir Starmer is the, the anti-Johnson, if you like, the opposite of, of all of the things that Johnson is. Keir Starmer is thoughtful, strategic, and, and very dry and isn't capable of telling good jokes in the way that Johnson is and is not full of the bluster, bonhomie and cheerfulness that uh, epitomizes Johnson. Keir Starmer is a details man. Johnson isn't. We could go on about the way in which they're, they're just polar opposites. He told uh, what I think was really an interesting, some people might think terrible joke at the, at the Labour Party conference this week in which Starmer talked about his roots and his father was a toolmaker. And he then went on to say that Johnson's father could be seen in similar light. <laughs> um, so, as I say, not everybody thinks that was an appropriate joke. Starmer has decided that he needs, to, he needs to resolve the politics, the internal politics of the Labour Party before he tackles the Conservative Party, that this is the way to win the general election. And most people, their eyes roll, commentators, uh, well, the thoughtless commentators say that he's, he's missing an open goal with respect to all of this incompetence and general inability to deal with anything that Johnson is displaying. Johnson displayed that through the pandemic, and he's displaying that with respect to the energy crisis in particular and the shortages in general. Starmer is not focusing on this because he wants to get the Labour Party in shape. And most people seem to think he's making a big mistake because nobody's interested in the internal politics of the Labour Party. More thoughtful commentators, uh, there's Nick Cohen has an article in The Spectator this week saying actually Starmer's playing a blinder. I don't know, it's an interesting perspective in which he's saying he's, he's put the left back in their box. This hard left militant tendency type wing of the Labour Party, which gave rise to Jeremy Corbyn, the unelectability of the Labour Party ensued. The Labour Party can now get can now from here focus on trying to win an election rather than bashing each other over the head. Remains to be seen, but I suspect that that is the right view to take. Starmer has won some key internal battles this week. That means the Labour Party finally can become outward rather than inward looking. That's my hope anyway, because Britain, whether or not you agree with anything that Starmer is doing, whether or not you are a fan of Starmer, I think every decent Democrat would agree that Britain needs a decent, functioning, not dysfunctional uh, political opposition in the House of Commons. And they've been missing in action for a long time now as an effective opposition. And the hope is any Democrat, as I say, whether you agree or disagree with, with Starmer's approach, or whether you like him or dislike him, must hope that an effective opposition to Johnson now emerges from what has been the carnage of the Labour Party in recent years. So that that really is it in a nutshell, Jim. Okay, interesting. Uh, I saw a commodities trader during the week um, quoted as saying that this is the global financial crisis for commodity markets. And um, looking at some of the statistics, uh, you, you mentioned them, but coal futures, for example, soared to a record high of $210.00. Uh, per metric ton yesterday, up 20% in the month. Uh, Brent crude went over $80 a barrel, which is the highest level since October 2018. 
and of course, as you mentioned, um, natural gas prices have absolutely soared over the last few months. Um, and there seem to be so many different things. It's the perfect storm at the moment hitting. Uh, there is a move away from coal around the world for environmental reasons, even in China. That is creating more demand for gas. Um, there are pressures in the United States to actually curb the exports of liquefied excuse me, liquefied natural gas as a result of uh, the global situation. Uh, a very cold winter last year around the world, particularly in Europe, but indeed in the United States, that depleted the stores of gas. Uh, and then we've had a very hot summer, which has also um, led to an increase in the demand for gas and energy. Uh, the Chinese at the moment produce three-fifths of their energy using coal, one-fifth using hydropower, and the rest using gas. And of course, because of the droughts that are being caused, and this is not just unique to China, it's happening in Latin America as well, because of the droughts associated with climate change, um, hydropower is, is is not working. You know, there's just not enough water. So hence, there is a move towards um, increasing the demand for gas. Um, then there's lots of capacity issues around the place. Um, this Some of this is COVID-related. Um, some of it is down to just, just seems to be a lot of maintenance around the world of gas plants at the moment. Um, the Russians appear to be playing a little bit of politics um, with gas supply. Um, you know, they did a deal yesterday with Hungary, but they're basically trying to bypass the Ukraine at the moment. And, and one of the views is that this is all um, a strategy by Gazprom, the Russian energy company, to um, accelerate the delivery of Nord Stream 2, which is the gas pipeline from Russia to Germany. So there's, there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, some of it is related to COVID. Some of it, a lot of it actually is related to climate change and the implications of that for weather, extreme weather events, and also for um, the demand for coal. So lots of stuff happening. And if you superimpose this with what you describe happening in the UK, uh, but indeed around the world, there are supply chain issues with global shipping um, in a bit of a serious crisis at the moment. Um, it all adds up to a pretty bizarre picture at the moment. And, you know, global financial crisis for commodities. What do you think? One of the interesting things about economics in the modern era is the the way in which people have moved away from doing big picture macroeconomics. Uh, it got a very bad name in the run up to the financial crisis because the macroeconomists didn't forecast the financial crisis. Uh, that in particular, but other things as well, have led to the demise of people making these sorts of big picture calls or big picture analyses. I think if macroeconomists were doing it in the old fashioned way, they would we would be seeing headlines from them asking, is this a global energy crisis along the lines of the 1970s? Is it an energy shock in the way that the two big OPEC-related oil price rises of 1973 and 1979 both helped to cause a global recession? And could the post-pandemic economic recovery be thrown off course by this energy price shock? As I hinted earlier on, I think it might be a bit previous to reach those conclusions, or at least to answer those questions in the affirmative. But the longer this goes on and the higher these energy prices go up, the more it will take a bite out of global growth. 
Whether it actually prompts a global recession, I think it's a bit early to make that call. But I do think that that's one of the factors that has been causing this turmoil in both bond and equity markets. Bond markets are finally waking up to the idea that just maybe inflation is proving a lot less temporary than the central bankers hoped it would. Uh, Bond markets in the States are also responding to the fact that the Democrats um, are being stymied by the Republican Party, who are pursuing yet again uh, the debt ceiling. The way in which the Americans do their fiscal policy with regard to debt management is just nuts. And so we are days away from a potential default of the United States on its debt, doing what Greece did to us during the financial crisis. If the United States defaulted on its debts, that would be a financial catastrophe. And I think that would be extremely serious for global financial markets and for the world economy, even if it didn't last for a very long time. The the Republicans in their scorched earth policy towards Joe Biden are playing with fire. Uh, the, The hope and expectation of everybody in financial markets is that they'll take this to the wire and then concede uh, an increase in the debt ceiling at the last minute. But if they don't, the US government shuts down and ultimately defaults on its debt, which which will be catastrophic if that were to happen. So that's affecting bond markets as well. So you've got a double whammy for bonds, which is these inflation worries and the debt ceiling worries in in the States. Both affect global bond markets everywhere. Bonds affect everything in financial markets, not least equities. So both directly and indirectly, equities earlier this week took fright. It's it's not been a massive sell-off, but it's been, I think, the biggest sell-off since late in the first quarter or maybe in in, in beginning of the second quarter. As we speak, equity markets are bouncing a bit. So the one thing that has been injected into markets that has been absent for quite some time is that old-fashioned word volatility. It's back. And there's a suspicion that markets are going to have a torrid time ahead. I don't know. I don't believe in forecasting markets. I don't think anybody can do it. But from an old-fashioned feeling point of view, what does my do my instincts, somebody who's been around in markets for a long time, say, I think that we are in a spot of bother. And that question, for me, is the most important one. Will the rise in energy prices, the energy crisis, if you like, morph into something really serious for the world economy, and knock it back again, and that the post-pandemic recovery be snuffed out. Because growth has been softening everywhere recently for, for these sorts of reasons, and also it, it's, it's, it, the, the, the spurting growth that we had coming out of the pandemic couldn't be sustained anyway. But if the slowdown in growth accelerates because of this, this energy crisis, then all sorts of calculations are, are blown out of the water. Not least, for example, Pascal Donoghue's. The budget will be framed on the basis of economic expectations about growth and what that growth means for both public expenditure and tax receipts. If global growth takes a downturn over the next year, then anything the, the budget is already uh, defunct. Um, it's, it, the assumptions upon which it has been built are wrong and Ireland's public finances will be in a lot more trouble than we actually think they are. So as they say, it's early days yet. I'm not forecasting any of that, but there are certainly storm clouds gathering. Yeah, I was reading a piece from the great Nouriel Roubini um, last night. And Roubini, I guess, made a name for himself during the great financial crash. Uh, Pretty much called it all very right at the time. Um, Roubini was sort of speculating on the different scenarios for the world economy at the moment. You know, we have the Goldilocks scenario, which we've been living through really with 
decent enough economic growth, well-controlled inflation. That's ending. Um, and the question is now where we, well, is, is Goldilocks, is that scenario ending? And I think there's a growing consensus that it is, at least for the moment. Um, he was looking at the strong fiscal and monetary stimulus in the system at the moment, the strong rebound in global economic activity, um, leading to an overheated situation, but not lasting very long. And ultimately getting back, getting us back to a period and a term from our youth, well, from my youth, certainly, uh, the notion of stagflation. Um, and stagflation describes an environment of subdued economic growth and high inflation, um, which is, I guess, from a policymaker's perspective and from a market perspective, it is a little bit of a nightmare scenario. So there is definitely a sea change happening in people's attitudes at the moment. And following the logic of what Rubini is saying, uh, you'd be pretty nervous about global equity markets at the moment. And I know we could have had these discussions every year for the last three or four years coming into the year. Equity markets looked highly valued despite all of the negative stuff that was going on, political, economic, and so on. Equity markets just continue to trundle ahead. And since March 2009, it's been an incredible equity market cycle. Um, but th there's certainly a sense now that that there is the first real threat to that to that scenario at the moment, and um, you know how how worried should investors be at this juncture? I, I'm quite nervous, to be honest, Jim. For the first time in a long time, the logic behind that great rise in equity markets since 2009—it's been a long bull market, a few bumps along the way, but as you say, it's it's been going on for a long time, and the argument for buying equity has been a very simple one. There is no alternative. With bond yields at effectively zero, that's the main alternative to equities. Investors, particularly long-term investors, have had no choice. It's not been an even ride up in equity markets. It's been dominated by the tech sector in the United States and all of those household names like Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, those sorts of things. And they're the ones most sensitive, their share prices, are most sensitive to this rise in bond yields that we've seen in recent days. We need to keep this in perspective. The rise in bond yields has been relatively modest, and they're still, historically at least, very low. But markets, stock markets twitch every time the bond markets push long-term interest rates up. The other thing that has got bond markets a little bit worried outside of the eurozone is what the central banks in both the United States and the UK have been saying in recent days because both have been saying, unlike the ECB, that they're planning to row back quickly all of this monetary stimulus uh, that they've been un under undergoing since the pandemic. And in the United States, that's about the government not, print not printing as much money as it did before, similarly in the UK. But the Bank of England governor this week said that it's possible, uh, and only possible, that interest rates in the UK might go up this year. Markets are saying it's more likely to be the first half of next year. But actually looking at the possibility of rate rises, and I think that, that there's a strong argument for saying that would be a policy mistake, but that's got a lot of people spooked as well. And although ex interest rate expectations are not nearly as bad in the United States, they are those rate rises are gradually being brought forward. So, um, so one of the interesting things is that there's a stark contrast there between the English speaking world, uh, particularly the UK and the US, 
and the eurozone what the ecb is up to there's because these inflation problems are not nearly as bad in europe as they are in the, the english speaking world the ecb can be relatively relaxed or more relaxed than their counterparts in the bank of england and the fed so nobody is talking about imminent rate rises in the eurozone and that one of the consequences of this whether you think any of that's right or wrong doesn't matter that's what the market is doing is that it's produced an, an unusual at least in the context of the last year or two move in exchange rates both the dollar um, the dot well the dollar has strengthened because of uh, all of these factors um, and interestingly notwithstanding the fact that interest rates might be going up in in the uk sterling has weakened it's not huge none of these moves that we're talking about are huge but they are doing it in ways that they they're either reversal of previous trends or things becoming a wee bit more volatile than we thought so the whole market environment has changed it's moved on in ways that i don't think are healthy i and i for one from a short term perspective which i hate talking about because as i said earlier i don't think you can say any of this with any great confidence i i i really don't believe that you can forecast where markets are going but instinctively given that i've been looking at markets now for 40 years nearly i i, I must say jim i echo your nervousness and i i, I would urge anybody to, to think very seriously about these issues that we raise the final thing that i think is a spooked market is the growing realization that biden is coming close to the end effectively of his presidency because the republicans it is widely assumed in just over a year's time will regain control of either the senate um, or the house of representatives or both and that will just set the scene for trump's re-election in 2024 that means according to martin wolf writing in the ft this week echoing remarks by an eminent scholar with lots of high profile controversial views over the years mr kagan writing in the washington post this week both effectively echoing each other saying that we are looking at the end of american democracy and that sort of thing i think also is lurking in people's minds thinking hmm that doesn't sound good does it yeah it's 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 very disturbing to see the republican party voting in mass uh, to uh, prevent the debt ceiling being lifted uh, it's it's extraordinary stuff it just it just shows we economists get slagged off over our inability to forecast anything but when you're dealing with this sort of political behavior and this political behavior is definitely everywhere getting worse at this juncture uh, it's 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 pretty depressing stuff chris on another note i read in the irish times this morning that you participated in a budget 2022 webinar for pwc yesterday and um some of the stuff you said was reported in the irish times this morning um i got a very irate call from somebody saying i see your fellow podcaster is going with this barmy idea of relocating dublin port where did that come from oh it's it's something that i and others have urged for a number of years now i remember an old colleague of mine actually um from the asset management world years ago putting this as a thesis that would make a lot of sense for dublin and i know that david mcwilliams has also written about this in the irish times more recently um it's not an original idea for either me or david it's it goes back a long way and several people have come up with this and of course the authorities particularly the port authorities uh, resist this strongly it's it's infrastructure that needs to in my opinion to be put elsewhere in the sense that it's wrong to have a major busy port in the cent- effectively in the center of your capital city 
And if you're interested in regional development, you could move it up north or you could move it down south. There are plenty of bits on the coast that could accommodate uh, all of this container traffic. And it's, it was just a suggestion, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, because I know it'll never happen, that will be a, a useful way of government capital spending if they sponsor this kind of idea. That kind of radicalism, of course, is, is, is not evident. And as I say, it was somewhat tongue-in-cheek. More seriously, the, the sorts of things that I suggested on, on that webinar for PwC, I hope will be taken seriously. And, I, and I'd urge anybody to take a listen to it. I would say that, wouldn't, wouldn't I, given that it was me speaking. But the two things that I would repeat here out of the many that I said are first, on the environment, the rise in energy prices in a way is a good thing because um, the price mechanism will work eventually to steer us away from fossil fuels. The more expensive they are, the less we're going to use them, presumably, hopefully. Uh, the more substantive thing I would say is that we're not gonna, we, we need our politicians in the upcoming budget and more generally to get serious about the environment and in particular to get honest. And the reality is that we will not be serious about the environment until we take a drive down one of Ireland's shiny new motorways in an electric car and look at fields that currently are full of cows and we no longer see that. And instead of cows, we see wind farms and maybe even solar farms um, replacing them because the way in which we travel and the way in which we eat and the way in which we insulate our homes and heat our homes has to change radically. And until we see radical changes in our behavior, and the government has to encourage that via both stick and carrot, it has to persuade, and it also has to force via taxation and other regulatory matters, those kinds of behavioral changes. We, we're, not, we're, not, we're still not serious about the environment. The second point I made in that talk is that we have to think about fiscal policy differently going forward. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that. And one suggestion I made is that in the current circumstances, we know that we've already borrowed and sent debt up to levels that in the past, people like you and I would have said would have prompted a debt fiscal crisis. And we know that the governments can borrow a lot more than we previously thought, helped by the central banks who buy a lot of this debt. And so the question needs to be asked, how long can that continue? And I would take up a suggestion made by Larry Summers, actually, that the, one of the targets, one of the new targets the governments like Ireland should set itself is debt is based on a debt interest target. Debt interest as a percentage of GDP, or in Ireland's case, debt interest as a percentage of GNI star, in that contingency plans need to be laid out as to what you're going to do when these interest rates, when these bond yields, your cost of borrowing actually goes up. It's fine to borrow when rates are low. That is obvious now. But what are you going to do when the cost of borrowing goes up You've got to have some kind of mechanism, some kind of target, some kind of trigger that says, OK, when our debt interest costs, the costs of servicing this debt go beyond a certain point, we are either going to have to raise taxes or cut spending. And uh, that would be new. And I would strongly encourage that. I doubt whether we're going to see anything like that. But I think that suggestion from the ex-US Treasury Secretary, which was for the United States, could be applied to many other countries. And I think we need to think about what we're going to do once the cost of borrowing goes up. Chris, I hope you weren't going to suggest I start eating wind farms. Um, as, as somebody who grew up on a farm, um, I value food production 
Um, I recognized the necessity of food production and um, the, the notion that we would depopulate our country of cattle and import beef from the Mercosur countries in South America and the environmental implications of that, to, to me, does, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, well, that wasn't I, my suggestion. I was my, my, The implicit assumption that I made in that uh, replacement of cows is that we're going to stop, we have to stop eating beef. And do you think people will? No, I don't. I, don't, I, don't. I don't either, actually. We have to live in the real world. I um, I, I, I was looking at the last Friday, we had more of the Greta Thunberg uh, protests around the world. Um, young people are being written up as being the saviors of the planet. Um, and yet I step outside my door every morning and see hundreds of kids being dropped off in school in cars, parking everywhere. I go down into my local park and this, there's a skate park down there. Um, I walk past it early Monday morning. Um, it's obviously populated by young people because old fogies like myself uh, wouldn't be capable of maneuvering around a skate park. But um, just littered with plastic bottles. I mean, there's, there's a massive amount of hypocrisy going on here. Um, you, you can talk about stop eating beef, but if people started to question you know, do I need to drive my car everywhere I'm driving it at the moment? Can I walk? Can I cycle? Can I get public transport if it's available? Um, we, we really do need to change the whole way we live our lives. Uh, likewise with clothes, um, you know, fast fashion and so on. There's just so many facets of our life we are going to have to change. But, uh, but that was my point, Jim. Jim yeah, that was my but, point. But, but, I, but I think in this whole debate, because it's the easy scapegoat, there's a massive focus on food production rather than all the other stuff. Um, if you try and build a wind farm here in this country, you will have years of objection. You will have protests. You'll have all sorts of rubbish. Likewise with solar. So we, we can't have it every way. Uh, no, and, and first, yeah. Politicians must show leadership here. And point out to us. The, when was the um, last time politicians showed leadership here? Well, I'm just suggesting that this might be an opportunity for them to start. <laughs> and that uh, point out to us that all of this talk about environmentalism, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, is just cons what um, a friend of ours called conspicuous environmentalism, uh, which is essentially virtue signaling without actually doing anything radical anything different and you can the hypocrisy of it you as you mentioned is all around us and the time has come to get serious uh, about all of this from plastics to diet to travel and you say that the focus is on food i think that there's an inappropriate focus on aviation if you stopped everybody from flying it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference you have to go for where the emissions are the greatest and uh, I wonder if anybody actually knows the relative environmental impact of cows versus aeroplanes, for example. Mm. The, 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 we, we, so either get serious about this or just stop talking about it. I get, I'm just frustrated by the fact that all we do is talk about these things and do absolutely nothing. The amount of energy that our gas boilers in our homes, the amount of CO2 that they pump out, is frightening. And so the politicians specifically will have to say, not just stop eating cows, but retrofit your homes, insulate them properly, because in these islands, Britain and Ireland in particular, we have spectacularly uninsulated homes and inefficient CO2 producing gas boilers that have got to be replaced with other technologies. And until you start saying this kind of thing, 
and following up the words with some kind of action, then for God's sake, shut up and talk about something else. Yeah, yeah, w- w- wouldn't disagree with you. I think massive incentives will be required to force that sort of change in behaviour. Listen, Chris, I think we've um, ran out of time at this stage, a, a wide-ranging discussion, I think you'll agree, um, until we meet again. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.